Today's scripture reading is brought to you, Genesis uh, 3, verses 1 through 21. First, join me in a prayer for illumination. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. For the Word of God written, for the Word of God proclaimed. For the Word of God made flesh, we give you thanks. May the everlasting Word be written on our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. For the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because because you have done this, Cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground for which out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. The word of the Lord. I just want to say thank you again to our special musicians for being with us today. I'm going to talk here for about 30 minutes, so if you need to move around or whatever, feel free to do so. 
we're glad you're here. I was talking with uh, their director, Christopher, uh, before the service, and I learned uh, that he got his music degree here from the UW, so he's a Badger as well, and uh, please uh, welcome him and, and uh, all of our guests uh, after the service. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I went through a kind of a fascination uh, with uh, a TV show uh, called Breaking Bad, as some of you may have seen. Uh, I'm not saying I recommend it, uh, but there is a full-length uh, feature film coming out next week uh, based on... I see, I see one person who's excited. Uh, it's coming out in about a week uh, based on the character Jesse uh, from the show. But, but what I found so uh, fascinating when I was watching the show was uh, the main character, Walter White. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, Walter White is... Uh, a 50-year-old uh, overqualified high school chemistry teacher who has a son with cerebral palsy and a baby on the way. And in the first episode, you learn that Walter has been diagnosed with lung cancer, and he decides that he must come up with a way to earn extra money uh, for his family before he dies. And as the viewer, you have a lot of sympathy for his situation. But then he does something surprising. Uh, instead of getting a job at Target or or the local grocery store. He uses his knowledge of chemistry to pursue the much more uh, lucrative position of manufacturing methamphetamine. And throughout the show, Walter's cancer treatment continues, but as the show goes on, you discover that Walter White has a deeper problem than the cancer cells that are multiplying in his body. He has a kind of cancer of the soul, a moral cancer that infects all of his decision-making. He he crosses line after line of inhumane behavior and brutality to achieve what he wants, which is making as much money as possible. And in this, he surprises even himself, and, and when his family discovers who Walter's become, uh, they're horrified. Uh, Walter begins as a kind of traditional protagonist whom we're rooting for, but by the end of the show, he's the ultimate antagonist, and we're just waiting for his downfall. Well, over these past several weeks, we've been reading through the book of Genesis in, in order to see what the Bible and, and the Christian faith teach us about what it means to be human. And the shift that we see today from humanity in Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3 is just as surprising as the shift that Walter White makes from average high school chemistry teacher to drug lord. Last week, uh, Pastor Mike shared how human beings were created for relationship with each other and friendship and marriage and for relationship with the triune God. But by the end of Genesis 3, what we find is a complete breakdown of relationship. Adam and Eve become alienated from each other, from their own bodies, uh, from the creation around them, and they're alienated from their creator, the, the God in whose image they were made. And this is symbolized by their hiding from him. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Instead of intimacy, there's now distance. Instead of harmony, there's conflict. As we've been saying throughout this series, you can't really understand human beings 
if you don't see that they're both beautiful and broken, capable of, of great acts of goodness, but also terrible harm. The whole history of the human race is here in Genesis 3. The serpent's lie, uh, how we live the lie, and the promise that one day the Lord would overturn the lie by the offspring of the woman. Uh, He will strike your head, the Lord says. So let's look at each one of these. First, what is the serpent's lie exactly? Uh, How do we follow Adam and Eve in in following, in, in, in living that lie? And how does God overturn the lie. First, what, what is the serpent's lie? The serpent lies in two ways. First, in his question, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? This is not what God had said. In, in Genesis 2, uh, verses 16 and 17, the Lord said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are two parts to the original command. They can eat from any tree in the garden, but there is just one tree from which they must not eat. The the serpent's first attack is to question and to twist God's word. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He didn't say that. He said that they can eat from any tree except for one. In other words, the serpent suggests to Eve that God is not generous or loving. He's restrictive and demanding and he's withholding goodness from them. It's like he's put them in this garden of beautiful trees just to hold them back from them. That's the first lie. The the serpent's second lie comes in verse 4 in response to Eve when he says, you will not die if you eat of the tree of knowledge. In other words, the serpent says God is actually a liar and his promise of death if they are disobedient is, is simply false. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes the serpent's two forked lie in this way. Thus the lie was an assault on both God's generosity and his integrity. Neither his character nor his words were to be trusted. This, in fact, is the lie that sinners have believed ever since. The lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. You can't trust God, the serpent says. And if you obey him, you're just going to be miserable because he's not committed to your happiness or to your well-being. This helps us understand why God puts this one tree off limits. It can look so arbitrary to us, but it makes more sense once you see how it reveals the heart. It gives Adam and Eve the the opportunity to recognize their own limits as creatures and to trust in the wisdom of the Creator, to trust and obey God simply because they love Him. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, science fiction novel, uh, Paralandra, uh, reenacts the, the Garden of Eden on another planet uh, that has not experienced a, a fall from grace. And on this planet, an enemy has infiltrated to, to tempt the, the queen of that world away from God and, and to disobey a command that she was given to live on only one island in that world. The hero of the story, Ransom, 
explains to her that when it comes to other laws, she can see the good reasons for why they exist. But the one apparently arbitrary law gives her the opportunity to obey simply out of love. Ransom says, I think he made one law of this kind in order that there might be obedience. In all these other matters, what you call obeying him is but doing what seems good in your own eyes also. Is love content with that? You do them indeed because they are his will, but not only because they are his will. Where can you taste the joy of obeying unless he bids you do something for which his bidding is the only reason? This kind of obedience is possible only if you wholeheartedly believe that you're really convinced that the one who bids you is good and seeks your good. But when we believe the serpent's lie and stop trusting in God's goodness, we justify our behavior in all sorts of ways. Uh, We see this in Eve. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. One of the most striking things in this story is that Adam and Eve's actions are not portrayed as great acts of rebellion, but as an act of folly and foolishness. They don't blatantly rebel and turn their backs on God. Instead, they convince themselves that what they are doing is actually the best thing to do. Eve desires wisdom more than she desires God because she's internalized the serpent's lie that that God is not a loving father and she must depend on her own judgments rather than his. This passage also shows us the two primary ways in which we live out this lie. First, Adam does not fulfill the purpose for which he was created as as a protector of the garden. Genesis 2 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Literally, the word translated take care of is to keep or to protect or to guard. The same word is used at the end of chapter 3 to describe the flaming sword placed by God to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam's first job was to guard the garden. We're not told how the serpent gets into the garden. Evil remains a mystery here. But one thing is clear. Adam was supposed to protect God's good world. We could even say that the the first sin was not eating the forbidden fruit, but allowing the serpent, with its distortion of truth, into the garden in the first place. Even when the serpent is talking to Eve, Adam falls short. Notice that while the conversation is going on between Eve and the snake, Adam is present at the end of verse 6. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So we are like Adam when we assume that God does not really require our obedience. When we don't see obedience as a, a way of delighting in God and becoming the people we were created to be, and instead we see it as a drudgery, If God was really loving, we tell ourselves, he wouldn't ask for our obedience. 
We just want to do our own thing. This is the first way that we live out the lie that God doesn't have our best intentions at heart. We see the second way uh, that we live out this lie in Eve's response to the serpent in in verses 2 and 3. The the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Do you see what she's done here? She adds to God's command. In chapter 2, the Lord simply said, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve adds to the command, Nor shall you touch it. Eve invents, really, the first human religion that finds something more that must be done than what God commanded. Not just don't eat it, but don't touch it. Tempted by the lie of the serpent, Eve no longer sees God as a generous giver of all the trees in the garden. Instead, in her suspicion of him, she adds new limitations. This is what we do when we fall into legalism of whatever kind. We add to God's law. But underneath that addition is the internalized lie that God's love is conditional. And he will only be pleased with us if we obey him. We see him as a distant taskmaster rather than as a father who desires loving union with us. Underneath both of these ways of life, whether we rebelliously go our own way or we religiously keep the law, underneath both is a heart that doesn't have faith in or or trust in the Lord. And this lack of trust affects all our relationships. In one of my favorite scenes from Marilyn Robinson's beautiful novel, Lila, the two main characters, John Ames and Lila, have begun a tenuous courtship. Lila is a woman who's lived a hard life. She was neglected as a toddler and rescued by a hobo woman. She was brought up living hand to mouth, constantly traveling from one place to another. She's been mistreated by others, and she's full of shame about things that she's done herself. And so the love that she experiences with John Ames is hard for her to accept. And in this one scene, they're standing on his porch, and Robinson writes, With her head still resting on his shoulder, Lila said, I just can't trust you at all. He laughed a soft sound at her ear, a breath. She started to pull away, but he put his head on her hair, so she rested her head again. He said, Is there anything I can do about that? And she said, Nothing I can think of. I don't trust nobody. He said, No wonder you're tired. I just can't trust you at all. In Lila, I see all of us with our broken relationships and our mistrust and our doubts about other people and about God's own goodness towards us. This is the doubt and and the lie that God makes clear here as well, that he's committed to overturning and overcoming. How does he do this? How does he overturn the serpent's lie and and break through our lack of trust? Verse 8 again. 
they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The Lord comes close. He doesn't stay at a distance. He seeks them in their folly and in their sin. He calls them out of hiding. Yes, he announces that there are consequences to the choices they've made. There, there will be conflict and pain and toil and, and banishment from the original goodness of the garden. There is a judgment for their sin. But there is also a gracious promise for a future beyond judgment. In verse 15, he promises that a descendant of the woman will destroy the serpent. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call this the, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel announcing the defeat of Satan through the sacrificial death of the Son of God. This promise that the offspring of the woman will come and make things right, hangs over the whole rest of the story. In verse 21, we hear that the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord responds to the naked shame of his creatures with compassion. He makes the first animal sacrifice of the fallen world to, to cover them and to clothe them. In these acts of mercy, God invites us to see him as he truly is. Not as a God of arbitrary demands whose goodness we hold in suspicion. Instead, the Lord puts himself on display as a God of suffering, self-sacrificial love. In the person and work of Jesus, we see the length to which, to which he will go to bring redemption to the world. Not just sacrifice an animal to clothe us with garments of skin. He will sacrifice himself to clothe us with perfect righteousness. On the cross, Jesus reveals the heart of God as a heart of sacrificial love. Yes, we still see evil in the world. We read of horrible acts of violence and injustice in the news. All of these things raise hard questions. How could a good, a good God allow such things? But when we see Jesus going to the cross for the world, we know that one thing can't be true. It can't be that God doesn't care. He hasn't stood at a distance, but he has entered into the midst of our pain and our grief, and he brings hope through his resurrection from the dead. One writer puts it like this, Jesus allowed the viper of death to strike him, but he drains the poison of sin from its mouth, so that although the serpent may yet bite others, the venom of its attack is gone. Friends, this is the one who can bring us out of hiding, who can reorder our loves and turn obedience into joy. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? When you see that you have a Savior like this, you know it's safe to come out from hiding. 
That's what you're invited to do today, to trust him, to confess your sin, and believe the good news that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me end with this. There's a place in the New Testament where specific language from Genesis 3 is quoted. It's in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, where two of Jesus' disciples are going home after their Messiah's apparent failure and and death. And Jesus meets them on the road, and and though they don't recognize him, they they talk, and he tells them that the Messiah had to die and and rise again. And they, they still don't recognize him, but arriving at their home, they invite the stranger in for a meal. And the text says, So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's eyes are opened to their nakedness after they eat the fruit. But in Luke 24, the disciples' eyes are opened as they eat and drink with Jesus. The fall is reversed as they recognize him. This is the invitation that we have every week as we come to the communion table. We confess the ways in which we seek to live on our own apart from God's goodness, but we also remember that he is seeking us and he invites us to find the grace and mercy and forgiveness and life that we need at this table. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray today that you would open our eyes to see your beauty and to know your goodness. Would you heal that part of us that doesn't trust you and sees your commands as an impediment to our happiness or as a heavy burden for us to bear? May we find freedom in the invitation of Jesus to come to him with our weakness and find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We thank you, Lord, for your generous love displayed in him. And as we come to him, even today, would you build up in us the faith and the trust and the hope uh, that we need. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.